Well, it is good to be with you, beloved. Well, some of you might have seen this from um, on social media, but we have been doing some house projects at our house. We've lived here for four years now, and um, can you believe that? Four years, isn't that crazy? And um, for four solid years, I have been begging my husband to put a wall between my living room and my dining room, okay? That front room is so nice, but it gets sunlight for approximately 25 minutes a day. And so I said, can you please put a space here and light can come through? And he did, and it's been so great. And yay, I have light in my living room, woo! And we didn't collapse the roof, that even better. I was, we were worried, that was, that was a possibility. But as happens with house projects, one project kind of begets another. You're like, oh, that's so nice, what if we, Right, and so the latest thing, and this is a small thing, is that we are currently replacing the lights in our bedroom. And by we, I obviously mean him, because my skill set currently includes smiling effusively, offering carefully veiled critical comments, and handing him tools, right? Um, but anyway, so we um, have to replace this one light fixture. It's directly over our bed. It's this big circle, and they look really cool. They looked really awesome online, and we bought them. Um, and it's LED, too which means it lasts forever and it costs like three cents to run it. So like killer deal, right? Well, there's a problem with this particular light. Uh, you know how lights have those different hues? Like, oh, this is a soft white, right? Or this is daytime bright. Well, this particular light is apparently surface of the sun bright. <laughs> it is right over our bed. And so I basically have to wear sunglasses for any nighttime reading that I attempt to do. Because uh, the light is piercing, like, through my eyeballs, okay? And the funny thing is, is when the light gets switched on, and it's always accidentally, because nobody intentionally turns that light on, um, because we're preserving our vision, okay? Uh, so when it accidentally gets flipped on, um, all of a sudden I realize, um, oh my word, my nightstand has like an inch of dust, right? <laughs> or, wow, my book pile is radically out of control, I hadn't noticed right? Or if I'm looking onto some other side of the bed, wow, there are 17 cough drop wrappers. How did this happen, right? Or on my side, it's always like 37,000 bobby pins, right? Um, They've been lurking in the shadows. How nice. Light is wonderful. It illuminates, it brings clarity, and it energizes. And like my newly open, well-lit living room, you just feel good to be in that space. But Light also reveals, it unveils. There's no more hiding a mountain of cough drop wrappers that have been lurking in the shadows. Light exposes. And so this season following Advent and Christmas is the season of Epiphany, like I said. The season where we remember and celebrate that Jesus is the light of the world. He is the revelation of God sent to us in the flesh. And the story of the Magi, the three wise men following the star, perfectly embodies the season. That's why we still have our nativity set up for the Magi. Because it's the faithful seeking after and following the light. And aren't we just so glad that Jesus is the light of the world? Aren't we just so grateful that God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus? That's good news, right? Yeah, but the thing about light is it doesn't stay to itself, does it? The light in my dining room now shines full force into my living room, and it's delightful. And that light, that piercing light in my bedroom, is not just contained to one little circle of light. It illuminates the whole room, even the nooks and the crannies that I'd rather it didn't. And so, too, 
the light of the world. Jesus not only illuminates God's very self to us, the light touches us too. It exposes us and reveals what's in our heart, perhaps a little bit like this. Isn't that cool? I have a clicker. (laughs) You see, the light of Jesus shines into our hearts, and it finds things in it, doesn't it? Oh, look, there's a cobweb. There you go. Oh, look, you know, if you dug a little deeper, um, there's some bitterness towards my spouse in there. Wow, I didn't see that. Um, there's some anger towards a coworker, And this is actually my third grade yearbook. There you go. Who knew the things that you'd find? It actually is. You can look at it afterwards. I was so adorable. I was so cute. There's a pile of, uh, of our good intentions. There's a heap of fear that always seems to be kind of at a low-grade rumble underneath our skin. There's maybe a little bit of doubt stuffed in there and some loneliness we've been denying. Now, who made this mess in here? Now, some wounds, some hurts, abuse, loss, grief. We didn't choose that, did we? I did not ask God for the chronic hurt that is depression and anxiety. I didn't ask for that. Tommy did not choose to lose his mom to cancer when he was 28. And it's the same for you. Some of this clutter... This hurt comes from the experience of being human in a fallen world awaiting redemption, right? But there are those other piles. You know what I'm talking about. The things that we have shoved under the bed and that we have stuffed in the back of the closet and piled under everything else hoping no one would notice. The bitterness we will not release. The fear that we feed. The anger that we just kind of nurse along. The addiction we deny. The resentment we rationalize and the shame to which we cling, the rebellious spirit we justify. And the light, it burns a bit. We want to scurry up for cover because it hurts too much. Like, it's too hard. All things new. How lovely it sounds. To be rid of all of this stuff. Could it be? Yes, yes, we say it could be through the healing and the redemptive power of God. But the question we must ask first is, are we willing to release the old? In ancient Greece, there was a man named Hippocrates, and you might have heard of him. He uh, was known to be the father of modern medicine. And as he was teaching his students, the would-be healers and doctors, he is known to have said, before you heal someone, ask him first, if he is willing to give up the things that made him sick. Hmm. Do we really want to get well? Are we willing to give up the things that have been making us sick? Newness cannot come when we are hanging on to the old. It cannot come without us releasing what once was. It requires repentance, turning from sinful patterns. It requires forgiveness for those who have hurt us, and maybe even forgiveness for ourselves. It requires humility. See, newness beckons to us. Newness invites, but newness does not impose. We have to allow that light in, into the dusty, neglected corners, and pull out those boxes that we've been ignoring. Now, for the next few weeks, we're going to be in the Old Testament. And the prophets Isaiah and Nehemiah will be our guide on our journey to newness. 
this journey of releasing the old and opening ourselves up to God's act of newness and walking forward in newness of life. Now, Israel, the people of God, whose story we will be following in the Old Testament, they knew a little something about newness. Well, better put, they actually knew something about desperately needing newness more than they knew about newness itself, right? Now, we're going to be reading today from Isaiah 43 with a short pit stop in Psalm 137. So if you want to turn to Isaiah, you can do that. Now, in this stage, I'm going to fall to my death. I'm going to move this. Now, in this stage of the story, Israel, God's people, are in exile. That means their homeland has been decimated. Their beloved temple, built by King Solomon himself, done, right, toast. And they are the subject of the pagan empire. And most of them have been carried away to this foreign land as captives. And Psalm 137 captures this experience well, right? Their land has been destroyed. Their home's gone. Their temple trashed. And they themselves and their children have been carried off to serve a pagan king. And so in Psalm 137, it describes their experience. It says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our harps, for our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, sing one of the songs of Zion. But how could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? There is this pervading sense of hopelessness, as if they had been abandoned by God on that riverbank entirely. There is no newness on the new horizon, only despair, because what once was is gone, and it can never be again. There's no song to sing. But how did they get there? How did they end up sitting on the riverbanks of Babylon, being mocked by their captors and told to sing the songs of Yahweh? How did they end up so far from home, so far from God's intention for them, so far from their purpose? Now, Isaiah devotes about 39 chapters to the topic, so I don't think you'll mind if I summarize a bit. That's okay. The people of God forsook the Lord. When threatened, they did not turn to God for deliverance, but to other nations and to other powers to save them. They allowed their hearts to be divided, serving God, but also some other gods on the side. God did not have an exclusive right to the throne of their heart. They treated God as if he was not worthy of their all. They played the charade of faith, offering sacrifices and following procedure, but with hearts that were not set on God alone. And so through small nose. Small disobediences gave way to apathy, which gave way to outright rebellion. And so with eyes off of God and eyes instead fixed on only themselves and their own way, they started taking advantage of the weak and the poor because broken relationships with God often end up breaking relationships with people too, right? And sometimes when we have broken relationships, that breaks this one as well, vice versa. It goes both ways. So lack of trust and apathy, a divided heart, selfishness, entitlement, acting for their own gain. I bet if we poked around in those boxes a bit, the things in the shadows of our own hearts, we might find some of the same things. Like misplaced trust. Oh, that so tempting lie that suggests to us that that thing, that new job or that new habit or that new diet or that new relationship, just a little bit more money, that will save us. That's going to fix it. 
that's misplaced trust. Or those divided hearts. Things other than Jesus taking over the throne of our hearts. It happens over time. Our lives once oriented around serving and following Jesus. Our hearts oriented around serving and engaging Christ's body, the church. But slowly, slowly, things, other things become more urgent, more pressing, more important. And slowly, slowly, our hearts, our loyalty, our obedience is divided. There's also the charade of faith, going through the motions. Now, I know there are always dry seasons. There are times when you are going to come to worship, and you're going to be persisting in the word, and you are still going to feel as dry as a bone. But that's not what I'm talking about. There are seasons of that, no doubt. But what I'm talking about is consistently, over time, rejecting an inner posture of surrender and worship and giving in to that slippery enemy that I like to call the shoulder shrug of faith, the Eh. apathy is so dangerous because it leads us into that charade of faith and our hearts become harder and harder. Israel was also condemned for their acts of injustice, acting on their own interests without concern for the interests of others, particularly those who didn't have their own voice, powerless folk. And this self-serving pattern is constantly blared at us from every angle in our culture. And it is confirmed, affirmed over and over. And it draws us away from God saying, hey, it's, you need to do what's right for you. It's, if everybody else is kind of, you know, it's okay. You need to do what's right for you. But here's this. If we say we love God, but we hate our sister, our brother, we're liars. And those are hard words, but John said it in 1 John, not me, so take it up with him. Okay. Now, God continually invited Israel to turn away from their sin, to reject that apathy, their self-destructive patterns, and their selfish living. God says to them in Isaiah, he says, come, let's argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are as red as crimson, They shall be like wool. But Israel refused. They hid from that. Is that light bothering you, by the way? That penetrating light of God? There you go. (laughs) They hid from that penetrating, exposing light of God's presence, and they suffered the consequences by ending up in exile, not because God's a bully, but because God's way is the best way, and our way ends badly. Now, when I was a teenager, there was a boy. It was not this boy. It was a different boy. And I just thought he was like the best, man. He was the one. All the things, right? He was all the things. But my parents were never huge fans of the relationship. They saw some stuff that I maybe was kind of blind to. They never explicitly said, don't date him. But they did kind of have some hesitation and express some concern. But did I heed their advice? Did I listen to their reluctance? Um, no, because you don't know, Mom. The connection, it's cosmic. Okay, he's the one, Mother. (laughs) I wish I was making this up. (laughs) But over the course of the next several years, I went in and out of that particular relationship, and I finally came out on the other side of it, deeply wounded, spiritually and emotionally damaged. A mess with a broken heart and a hearty side of regret. 
My parents knew it wasn't a healthy place to be as parents so often did, but I persisted in my own way and I experienced the consequences of my stubborn choice. Now, I see this in my own kids, not in their romantic lives yet, thankfully. Uh, but particularly in Jack, who is insistent on doing the simplest of tasks his way. For example, putting a straw in a juice box. Okay? He has to go about it in the most backward, complicated way, consistently rejecting mom's way. And it takes forever, and we always end up with the old faithful of juice. So awesome, right? If you would just listen... Actions have consequences, don't they? And when we reject God's way of doing things, when we cling tightly to our own way, to that misplaced trust, and to those, those false sources of salvation, when we insist on persisting in selfish rebellion and callously disregard the good of others, there are consequences. And like Israel sitting on the banks of that foreign river so far from home, waking up to the realization of the consequences of their choices, we too sometimes find ourselves stuck. The evidence of our sin, our apathy, our rebellion lay around us. And not just of our own sin, but the sin of all of creation the brokenness that makes itself known through tragedy and loss and illness and death, and it all feels so final, so fatal, like the end of the road. And here is where our passage comes in. In the midst of these shadows, in the midst of the mess that we've made and the mess made by others, something happens. And it begins with two words, Isaiah 43.1, but now all the world is tucked into those two syllables but now this is what once was but now something new has broken in this past was marked by destruction by chaos by disorder by hurt regret and loss but now can you feel it there is this newness that trembles beneath the surface of the text, and it calls to us. It says, but now, thus says the Lord, he created you, O Jacob. He formed you, O Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Newness is breaking in. And it comes to us not on the broken wings of our good intentions, of our hustle or our goodness. It comes from God alone. And breaking through the piles of stuff that have built up all around us, God calls out, hey, you, hey, yeah, you, surrounded by all that junk. Hey, I'm your creator. I made you. I formed you with my hands. I know you're afraid. I see the fear rising up in you. I see it. I see your hurt. And I am inviting you to release that fear. Why? 
because I have redeemed you. And I am making a way for your healing and your restoration. God breaks in, bringing God-ordained newness. But notice, and I will tell you this is a bit of a disappointment to me, God does not banish the waters of chaos. Nor does he extinguish the fires of destruction. But what does he do? He shows up in the midst of them, doesn't he? In the midst of the chaos, he is stubbornly present every painful step of the way, declaring that though this feels fatal, the water will not overwhelm, the fire will not ultimately consume, because God is present. The text continues. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. So why not fear? Why not surrender in the face of the chaos and the destruction? Why trust in God's presence? What reason does God possibly give for that? For I am the Lord. It is who I am. I am your Savior. And that means I will go to any lengths to bring you back. My love for you runs so deep. I will move heaven and earth to seek and to save. You know, in some ways, when we read this text, it feels a little weird because God's totally throwing Egypt and Ethiopia and so they're under the bus, man, right? Like God's just saying, forget those guys, I just want you. And there is a sense of God's, God's uh, adoration towards the people of Israel. But what that text, we don't want to get caught up too deeply in that metaphor because what God is essentially saying He is saying that with undeniable fervor and passion, nothing will stop from seeking us out. Nothing will stop him from coming to us in the midst of the pile of our old, our hurts and our boxes of bitterness and our regret and our rebellion and our anger and our fear. God is on the way, on the way to rescue. He is bringing newness in his wake. The text concludes, he says, do not fear once again, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Do not fear. I am bringing my children home. I am gathering them all together. This divinely orchestrated homecoming, calling you each by name. The church that Tommy and I served at before we served you was in rural Missouri. And it was a very unique culture and that very few people uh, ever left. They were born and raised there and maybe they would leave for a season, but they always came home. They were very rooted to that geography, right? And one of my friends regularly expressed to me her just angst about how far away her mom was. She was 20 miles away. 
And I have to tell you, my mom at the time was 2,000 miles away, and so my empathy was about non-existent, right? Now here, it's a little different. Some of us are Idaho born and bred and live within just a stone's throw of our families. But a lot of us are imports. Or at the very least, we've lived somewhere else for a while and come back. And so we know what it is to say goodbye. We know what it is to have to settle for a phone call or a FaceTime chat at Christmas. Some of us know what it is to say goodbye to our spouse for six to eight months. And so homecoming is made all the more sweet for the separation we have endured. And so in this text, we bear witness to the ultimate homecoming. God gathering all of us together, his beloved children back into the fold, all of creation together in him. We who were so far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We who were so bound up in the chains of the past are now awash in newness, sitting in the warm glow of home. The light of Jesus, God with us, the light of the world. It shines into our lives, doesn't it? (laughs) Perhaps revealing some things we'd rather keep hidden. Perhaps we are overwhelmed by what we see, by the hurt. It's too big. (laughs) The sin is just so tangled within us. The addiction too profound, the rebellion not too far gone, the apathy too sticky, the old, it clings. And it feels easier to hide. Avoid the light, it burns. Embrace the shadows and nurse the wounds and the bitterness and the prejudice and the resentment. It's just easier that way, right? But that's not the way to newness. It's not the way to healing and wholeness. As we call out for newness to God, we must honestly ask, are we willing to give up the things that are making us sick? You see, we don't don't need this stuff. All of our hurts and our past and our anger and our fear and our regret and our sin, we don't need it. But, But we're kind of attached to it because it tells us our story who we were and where we've been. But now, God wants to tell you who you are and where you're going. We are the beloved children of God, created by him and for him, and we are headed towards newness. And the best news of all, all of this, is from God, not us, not our hustle, not our goodness. It's all from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Do you remember what it says? If anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. Everything old passed away. See, everything has become new. So what's in your boxes Bitterness, anger, fear, resentment, addiction, pride, prejudice, regret. 
What if you put it down and you heard the voice of God speaking over you, but now, but now I am with you. But now I am pursuing you. But now I am inviting you home. But now I am ready to do a new thing in you and through you. Are you willing to give up the old to make room for the new? We are not slaves to fear or sin. We are children of God. As I invite the band to come up and play, I am going to ask you today, as we conclude this part of our service, that you would stand with us as we sing today. Because I want to open up our altars. I know they're a little dusty. We don't use them much. But guys, the only way to newness is to let go of the old. And if God is inviting you, I want to create that opportunity for you to encounter the Lord in that way. And so I invite you to stand as we sing this song together. Our challenge today is to invite the light of Jesus into our hearts, to ask the Spirit of the Lord to reveal those things that are lurking in the corners of our heart, the things that need healing, the things that require our repentance. Invite the light, beloved. Acknowledge what once was, Give thanks to God for the gifts and mourn the losses, the hurts, and the sin. And with trust, let go of the old that the new might find a home in you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this invitation. Lord, the light is pretty bright. And it reveals things in us that we would rather keep hidden but we are not afraid. Because you never reveal to us our hurt or our sin until you are ready to lead us out. And Lord, you are leading some of us out today. And I ask that you would help us to shed the things that are holding us back. That we might place our trust fully in you trusting that you will take what is so broken and you will resurrect it. You will bring new life where life seemed impossible. And we trust that even though you will very often not banish the waters of chaos and you will not often extinguish the flames of destruction around us, you go with us. And you promise, you promise we will not be consumed. And so that is where we rest today. Do your work in us. We've already decided we're going to say yes. It's done. And we look forward with hope and expectation to what you are going to continue to do in us and through us as individuals, as families, and as this church. Amen and amen. Let's stand. Receive the benediction.
beloved. Christ Church. May you, with courage, invite the light of Christ into every nook and cranny of your heart that God might bring newness by the power of his spirit. Now go in action and go in peace. You are dismissed.